Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast with you as always. It's Bob live in the lounge staring at the Ouija board. Super stoked to have a real life guest. It's been like, what, six, seven episodes of me just solo chatting in the woods. It's nice to actually chat with somebody. It's nice to actually bring back um, a prolific um, guest. He's an author. He's an artiste. He's a pop culture enthusiast, and he's got a new book coming out that's appropriately timed just because I like so many different people in the world were enamored with the the Fab Four when documentary came out a few months ago on Disney Plus, directed by the incredible Peter Jackson, which gave us an intimate look into their lives, stuff that I never knew about the Beatles. Um, I always thought that John Lennon was a dick, but apparently not. Uh, we're going to talk about that and many different things. His new book is entitled Brit Mania. It uh, drops in October. You can um, down, excuse me, you can pre-order it down below here in the links. Super excited because the Beatles have just been something that I've loved talking about all my life. And we're recording this at eight o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. So I'm having a cup of coffee and I'm excited to bring back to the show, Mr. Mark Voger. How are you, sir? Robert, how are you? Thanks for inviting me back into the lounge. You must be getting sick of me. Mm -mm. Never. You know, like you have you, you basically talk about everything that I like. Right. So, I mean, like the Beatles, obviously, I remember at a very early age, you talking to me about the Beatles and just being like, you know, this was and is something that has affected me in my life. The Beatles, is there ever going to be another Beatles? Well, no, that was a moment in time. It was, a, you know, it was just it, it was impossible. It, you know, it, it shouldn't have happened. It, there were so many times when. They could have just been relegated to the depths of obscurity, but then there'd be that one break and then they would get to the next level and the next level. By the time they played the Sullivan show in February, 1964, which is the first time that most Americans even heard of them, uh, they, they were, they were uh, a, a tight, uh, smooth running operation and they just, they just killed, you know? Do you think that, can a band in 2022 get as big as the Beatles? And like, if you think about it, like now, like a band, like you see them every day on the internet, you see, you see their lives, everything. The Beatles got big to an international level with no news media that was associated with the phone. It was just all word of mouth. The Ed Sullivan show. What, what do you, re was it the Ed Sullivan show that was your first um, foray into the Fab Four? Yeah, it was, Bob. And, and the, the funny thing is, um, I was five years old, so there was no way that I would have ever seen the Beatles. But I was very lucky. Uh, my babysitter, her name was Debbie McDermott. She lived behind us. She had a couple of girlfriends over to watch the Beatles. They were the right age. And um, her father, there was, a, there was some big game that night, and uh, her father was not about to change the channel. So they ran... Uh, to uh, the, our back door and banged on the door and said to my mom, Mrs. Vogelsong, can we watch Ed Sullivan? We, and she knew, my mom could tell it was a matter of life or death from the way they were acting. So I'm in my pajamas. I was probably watching Walt Disney. And then all of a sudden, there's my babysitter and two of her girlfriends. And, uh, and they're screaming. They're, like, they're, they're screaming in my living room. It doesn't make any sense to me. But uh, thanks to that, thank you, Mr. McDermott, for not letting her let, change the channel because... Because of that, I got to witness uh, a little bit of Beatlemania uh, when, when the Beatles first played in, in February of 64. Did, um, what, what time was Ed Sullivan on? Was that a Sunday night show? Yeah, it was a Sunday night show every Sunday night. And if I had a guess, I'd say, I'd say 8 o'clock. Yeah, because um, Disney was at 7, right? I remember the Walt Disney hour that I, went into the 80s for a bit. Yeah, they, they, it was called the Wonder, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Because yep. color was like a new thing, although we only had a black and white set. Yeah. Oh, wait. So you were watching color on black and white? Like they were advertising this is color, but it was coming yeah. in black and white. <laughs> yeah. That must have been such a disappointment for a young child in the 60s. Actually, the first time I ever saw color television mm -hmm. was that show. And at the beginning of the show, in the opening credits every week, Tinkerbell would come up with a wand yep. and she'd go like this. And then these color kind of fireworks would happen. And it was the first time that was the first time I ever saw color TV. And I was like, what the hell at somebody else's house? It's so crazy when you watch those old um, Disney things, because the color is it's Technicolor. It looks so hyper realistic. Like the first color was like such it was like drenched in like, uh, I don't know, like magentas, I guess, in a way, you know, like it had such a, 
a royal color to it. If in like the old school Disney, I'm talking like the color palettes were just so unique. I can't imagine. I remember as a kid thinking when I was five that color was invented and we all lived in black and white. And then they made a film of it years later called Pleasantville. But like I used to think also Pennsylvania was the, like the world, you know, like there was no sure. continents. And we were all like we all like one day woke up in color. Conchahawken. Yeah, <laughs> in color. And like it's kind of crazy if you think about it, because it's like, you know, media is like how we perceive things right like i guess like now like everybody's on their phone everybody's you know it is true i was just talking about this on a podcast everybody's famous now everybody is andy warhol's dream come true um people don't even really want to be an actor or um a rock star anymore they want to be a tiktoker you know they want to just take their device and film themselves so it is true everybody is famous in a way you know and I kind of wonder, like, what would John Lennon think about all that now? You know, because John loved New York. He loved the obscurity of like, um, I just did you read that letter he sent to Paul McCartney that's up on for, for auction right now? No, I've not seen that. But I, but just, I know they were better friends than people remember. They Yeah, like they were good friends. And even like this letter that was sent to him, it was like Paul was talking badly about the Apple Corps, Apple Corps in, in like a news media ar- article or something. And John writes in this totally polite letter with like numbered bullets typed out on a typewriter about like you were mistaken if you think that the royalties go here and there this isn't the case but really good work on this last album you know it's like they're like yelling at each other but they're also complimenting each other and that's the thing about that documentary that was just i loved living in that doc i don't know if you saw get back did you see it I've seen a lot of it and I saw the first episode, but uh, I got my brother's going to show me the rest of it. I'm going to catch up. It's but just I, unique. I love it. It's magic. Yeah, it's magic because it's like anybody who's ever been in a band knows that it's a lot of work and it's a lot of work that like kind of goes. A lot more than just practice. Right. So it's like it's like a relationship in a way. It's like you're involved with these people's life, like you're married to them if you're a good band. And you can totally see that between Paul and, and John and like the relationship. But for me, I was shocked that John was just like the joker of the band. Like he's having such a good time at practice. Yoko's just basically rolling joints. She's not really trying to break up the band. And then you see that Paul McCartney, in fact, was the leader of the band, you know, like he was the glue that held it together. And like the driving force of uh, creativity behind writing songs. That was my favorite part, being able to see, how like a song like um, Octopus's Garden can just be created like in the room. And they had these dudes who would like sit around and like, like basically like Paul would just vocalize for like, you know, 20 minutes at a time. And then some, some cats like sitting there like scribbling it all down on a notepad. And then like, hey, this is what you just said. Like, dude, I would love that, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I mean, it's, uh, it, it is uh, a, a miracle that all that footage was captured and that, and, and that a, a guy like Peter Jackson put it together, who is who is a super fan, and they cleaned it up. I mean, it looks so beautiful because because I grew up, you know, I I saw Let It Be, the the, the movie Michael Lindsay Hogg's original mm-hmm. film that all that was made for, and that's only like a two hour movie, right? And yeah, that's like not, kind of like I, yeah, not even. I don't even think it's two. Is hours. Is there an agenda in that film? Well, like, um, you know, uh, I think Paul is a master of um, you know. Uh, uh, self-mythologizing and uh, it might even have crept into uh, the Beatles get back because when P- P- Peter Jackson says that Paul, Paul, when he first proposed it, Paul says, well, I don't know if I'm going to like it, you know, because, and, and so Peter had to like sort of, you know, assure him, oh no, it's not going to be a hatchet job, you know, mm-hmm. but Paul, um, Paul, Paul does dominate Michael Lindsay Hogg's original film and, oh, okay. uh, and John resented that him for that. That was one of the things near the end John said, John's comment was, Paul is God, you know, like he just said, you know, because it the edit really, really does favor Paul. And George always felt like he had, you know, so Two many songs, songs per album. That, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah. So he said, I, you know, he, he told Dick Cavett once I'd have to, um, I have to put out 35 albums to, to get all the songs that I wrote up to 1965. Uh, of course, which sounds you know sounds like hyperbole, of course, but yeah. but uh, and and you know famously they they uh, they didn't uh, record um, all things was pass, and then it became like the uh, the title track from a from a, a huge selling album by solo album by George Harrison. You know, but, I did not know uh, that really. That was recorded during that time. Yeah, yeah. It, it, they um, they they almost had it. And, George uh, is 
awesome. I mean, yeah. it was awesome. It's so sad that, you know, he passed away. I mean, he survives a knife attack at his estate, you know, but like watching him in that documentary and seeing his talent and seeing how he could like add these like little medleys to the song to make them better. And it is sad because it's like he's a great songwriter. And then like, you know, the notion that he only get like, you know, tax man or something like that. And then like at one point in the doc, he um he he quits the band and it's the most polite way to quit a band. He's like, I think I'll be going now. Yeah. It's like, what? Dude, like see you at the clubs. I think I'll be, I think I'll just be leaving the band now. And it's like, okay. But like they're all sad. And it's like the only thing that just always blows my mind. Like you and I both now are like, you know, older. We we are, Robert. We're old men, but when you watch that documentary. And like you think about the Beatles, even when you're a kid, even when I'm an old man now, I think of them as so um, talented pillars of success when they're writing that album, Get Back or Let It Let It Be in like those sessions and like all that weird, you know, stuff. They're only 29 years old. They're like in their late 20s. You know what I mean? Like they're just kids. They're kids who wrote the most amazing songs that still today people will put into their weddings put into their, you know, legacy films, whatever. Like, w- why is it that the Beatles music is so, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say popular, I want to say heartfelt. Well, that's the mystery because, uh, you, you know, we, you were talking about how I, I was t- talking with you about the Beatles when you were a lad. Um, you know, the Beatles never ever had to be foisted upon the next generation. All, all the kids, quote unquote, the kids, throughout the decades, uh, throughout the 60 plus years since the Beatles uh, formed, have, have made that journey on their own, not, not prompted by their parents. Maybe they heard the music in the background, yep. but they, they, everybody, they take it to heart. So there are still Beatles fans yet unborn. And, and uh, it, it's just amazing, you know, th- it happens for a lot of the bands from that British invasion period. There's a lot of, uh, you know, Stones fans and Who fans, you know, but for the Beatles, it, 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 almost, it almost seems like, you know, somewhat universal that there'll be like a lot of like really, you know, fervent fans of, of this group um, that continue to, uh, to, to discover them for the first time, you know. Oh, well, and, but Robert, yeah, sorry, I, I wanted to no, go back to one ahead. interesting thing. When you were talking about color versus black and white, yeah. and of course, it reminds me of um, Wizard of Oz when, the, when yeah. Dorothy walks out of the house and walks into Oz and it's in color. Mm-hmm. Strangely enough, the Beatles, uh, and a lot of people have said this, um, I didn't make this one up, but the Beatles were perceived like that because if you see anything of them from 1964, it's, it's usually black and white, even still photography. The, the Ed Sullivan Show appearances, you know, and, the, and, and then their first movie, Hard Day's Night, it always seems that like, like the Beatles themselves brought color into the world because from 65 on, the movie Help and uh, more color television and, and stuff like that, uh, like like the, the it, it went from Eisenhower in uh, black and white to uh, you know psychedelic color eventually. The Magical Mystery Tour, and, right? Yeah, that's the first so, film that they do that is psychedelic in nature and also directed by them too, right? John directs this famous scene where he's uh, living out a dream sequence where he's shoveling pasta onto yeah. a plate and like I love Magical Mystery Tour. I think one of my I think my favorite Beatles song is. I am the walrus. Oh my like, God. I, I love it so much because it's so, it's such a march, but it's like, it doesn't sound like, like music to me. It sounds like something like grew out of the ground and became something on its own. Like it's like, it's such an interesting song because it is the beginning of their psychedelic journey. It is the beginning of them getting away from the shaggy haircuts and stuff like that. But to me, you know, the colors and stuff like that, but like the songwriting just goes from the traditional like you know like uh here's like a one four five might you know like here we go with this and then all of a sudden they're doing strawberry fields forever and they're making these uh, arrangements and then the interesting thing for me as an artist not a musician because it feels if some musicians don't really like playing in this world so much they're just like let's just record it but to the beatles they were artists and i loved that they started to mess around with like audio you know they started to be like well how many tracks can we do can we make this backwards? Can we make this sound like it's like some sort of creature coming through the speakers? And um, Brian Epstein, I believe, right? 
Well, Brian Epstein's the, 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 that was their manager. Their manager. He's but, also the, he, he's, he's allowing them to go. He's influencing them. And then tragically he passes away years later and then they're kind of lost. But like, I wonder how much of Epstein was being like, okay, let's take this vessel of creativity and see how far we can go with it. Well, I think their their chief enabler in, in all of that stuff about like recording and doing backwards things and, and the orchestration was was their um, producer George Martin. That's right, George and, Martin. And, I yeah, mixed yeah. the two up. Yeah. Oh, you yeah, know, it, it's it, it's mm. uh, it's it, it happens all the time. You know, because because you know most of us just think of like we hear the music we've heard it all our lives. We just think the Beatles. You know, but um, mm. he um, and and one thing that's interesting about uh, I, I I watched a lecture by him once and he said that. Um, uh, Paul McCartney would say to him, "Could could it be a French horn and could it do a line like this?" And do 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 do. And he'd like he'd have a very specific thing that he wanted to do. Yeah. And then and then John Lennon might say, "Put a green thing over it." You know, just like <laughs> a, a real vague, like I'm tripping as I speak kind of a of direction. You know, but but yeah, they, they, that's that's why. I mean, and and the song that you mentioned, "I Am the Walrus," uh, uh, in in Magical Mystery Tour. Uh, that film, that video is out of this world. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really like you talk about like an MTV style video that is like such so, such a perfect visual representation of, of that trippy song. Uh, and just like the way it looks like, it's like very Stanley Kubrick. It's very Clockwork Orange, these like structures. For me though, I, I see this, I see this for the first time as a 12 year old boy when a ABC releases the three night anthology series or whatever. I think it was three nights in a row. Remember this in like early nineties, it was on television. It's when they re-released or excuse me, they released for the first time, real love. It was oh, a song. Remember, oh, you know, yeah. it was like, it was like, Oh, the Beatles are back. Of course. So, so this is the, this is the first time I see the Beatles. This is the first time that i see i am the walrus the, all these things and then like i immediately go by the blue double album the red double album and then i start to like completely consume myself with all beatles and then like buying this the 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 cds and then like i'm so glad that i remember this dude because i love talking about this okay one of the things that i loved as a kid is being like why what happened to john lennon like it seems like john lennon is two different people there's the pudgy version of John in the early 60s. And then I found out through like a deep dive one night on Reddit that John got John was very, very um, self-conscious. And there was an article that came out, I think, in like 63 or 64 that um, uh, addresses him as being like the pudgy, overweight beetle or something like that. There was these photographs taken of them like on a beach or something like that. And then John completely goes on like i think he starts dieting i know at one point with yoko he was just eating like a bowl of rice but he loses so much weight during magical mystery tour you see his cheekbones just suck in and then his whole look changes he looks like a totally different person and i never knew that it was because somebody fat shamed him you know i never i never knew that either uh, yeah i went on a deep dive man yeah. you know it's it's interesting right because it's like in today's world everybody's like you know um I mean, people are like, what, will fix themselves with like, you know, lasers, like taking off parts of their skin they oh, don't yeah. like. But it's interesting that like even back then, without all this media that is so uh, apparent in our society and like right at the forefront, it bothered him. You know, he was a human. And I love that. You know, it was like it made John more real to me. Yeah. I, you know, I saw him I saw him in person once. Oh, tell uh, me about that. dude. It, it, it was in it was in Philly. Wow. What happened was, uh, OK, real quick, uh, 1975. It was right before he entered his uh, sort of house, what they call his house husband yep. period. It was like um, uh, one DJ I talked to said that was his last appearance before he, you know, he started recording uh, his, the final album, Double Fantasy. But anyway, mm -hmm. he, he was in Philadelphia for a weekend to do so, on something on, you know, the stations, 56 AM WFIL. Yep. And um that was the big AM station in Philly in, in, in the seventies. And uh, he was doing something called the helping hands marathon. And he, but the cool thing was he was on the air constantly. It wasn't like a one shot. He was spinning records. He was reading pledges. So he'd say like, uh, you know, this one from, uh, you know, like uh, Concha Hawkins, uh, $5, you know, like it was all low. They were all wow. kind of low uh, pledges and he'd play songs. And uh, uh, I remember he played, both um, the Elton John version of uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and the Beatles version. And then he came back and he said, 
I was on both versions and I regret neither one. You know, like uh-huh. I remember cold some of the things he said because I, I was taping it on my uh, Pioneer cassette deck yep. um, w- whenever he was on. And then anyway, long story short, uh, we were fr- visiting a friend in a, ho- in a hospital in Philly and we said like, let's go to, uh, let's take a bus to um, uh, City Line Ave where WFIL is. And we, anyway, I, I saw him. I got his autograph for a dollar. Wow. I don't have it anymore. He he paid, he asked you for a dollar. No, what happened was he came out real yeah. quick, and they were saying they, they had girls in like sort of candy striper or WFIL outfits, adorable mm-hmm. t- uh, teenage girls, you know. And they they said they would tell everybody he will sign autographs for, uh, uh, for as little as a dollar donation. Wow! Give us a buck, you know. And then and he was signing scraps of paper. But this is so cool. If you brought long like his book in his own right, or if you, I remember somebody brought the the rock and roll album that, yep. that came out that time, he would sign that. He wouldn't personalize it because there's no time and too big of a crowd for that. But for a lousy dollar, you could pass the album in, and then the you know girl would pass it back to you. So wow, so yeah, I, I got it, John Lennon's autograph for a dollar, and no, I don't have it anymore because I'm an a hole. I wrote over Muhammad Ali's autograph when I was seven, so I'm an a hole too. I traced over it. But uh, whatever, you know, uh, that's just the thing about the Beatles is like, you know, they're just even Ringo, like all of them, like they all have like this magical quality. And like when I tell people like, you know, certain certain people will be in a band for years and it don't work out, you know, and they're like, damn, dude, like, why didn't it work out? You know, and it's like case in point reference the Beatles, because it's like it doesn't work without all four of them. Or it could have been it could have been at one point too. The, the, I mean, the documentary reveals that. They're um they're gonna they're going to uh, add a fifth member at one point. Uh, keyboards on the. Uh... You talking about Billy Preston? Yes, Billy Preston. I was gonna Google it real quick, but yeah, yeah, Billy Preston. I don't know if you got to that part of the doc, but it's like he comes in and he's just jamming, and basically John and Paul are having a great time with him. They're like, oh my god, he's so good. They're making the band sound better, and like he was going to become the fifth Beatle. Well, I didn't know they were actually considering yeah. having him join, but um. Of course, George was the one who, who brought him back after after George quit. Um, oh. I think within a week he came back with Billy. I always think of it almost like a human shield. Like, you know, oh my like, god, dude! I had it in my band. Yeah. In my band, Downtown Harvest, I did the same thing. I had a friend who didn't play music, but I would bring him because he was like a human shield to get me out of like the conflict that I'd have with the other guys because we'd always be you know at each other's throats. But Billy was so gifted that they all immediately saw that that much like Paul and Ringo had this gift too, that, that if you got a song cooking, he could immediately come up with a part for it. Oh my God. And so man. up on the roof, you know, it's, it's, it's the Beatles and Billy Preston, you know, isn't that so interesting too? If like you think about it, it's like, okay, so they do. So they, they play concerts, right. And then they stop playing concerts because they get so disenfranchised with the fact that they can't hear themselves. The last concert that they perform in public for a crowd is a candlestick park. Am I correct on that? I'm not sure, but I know that I know it was like 66, right? Also, like it's crazy if you think about it. Like if you're a musician out there, like the the massive the maximum amount of amps I think was like 30 watts or something like that. And they couldn't figure out how to um, pipe in like a, a PA system to the amps, so they couldn't even hear themselves playing. It was all new. What's that like, dude? Like, what what is it? What's it like playing for like you know ten thousand people and you can't hear shit? Like, I can't imagine. Like, that would probably lead me to want to quit live music too. And yet, you, and yet, when you in your hear, studies, what, why do you think that they quit? Well, I, I think I know, and, I, and and it harkens back to a question you asked earlier about mm-hmm. could the Beatles happen again? Um, there's one thing that, that that couldn't happen again. There, it would just take another form if there was another monolithic, ba- you know, like a band that like really uh, uh, scored that much and was that popular. It would take another form, but because everything's because everything's today is done, kind of, you know, everybody can have their own recording studio at home and and you can and through social media you can get your songs out there of course none of this was existed in the late 50s and early 60s the the uh, the advantage that the beatles had was that they spent two years in hamburg playing like 12 hour shows and getting heckled by drunken german sailors you know and 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 it was such a, a proving ground and so so they carried that with them for the rest of their lives so they were used to like, you know, flying by the seat of their pants, you know? So when, like I say, when you 
Paul says they were very nervous when they played Sullivan, but if you see them on Sullivan, they're, they look perfect, you know? And when you listen to um, uh, their, their big concert in, in New York at uh, the big stadium, uh, blanking out. Vassar um, Square? No, no. Uh, they never baseball. played there, did they? I don't think they ever played the game. Uh, uh, Cubs or Yankee Stadium? Um, yeah, Club? I, I, oh, that's I, true. I'm an idiot for not remembering. I'll have I don't to know. I, I, it's all right. But no, but um, any, anyway, um, Shea Stadium. It's yes. very famous, Shea Stadium. Yes. They, they couldn't hear themselves. And yet when you listen to their performance, yeah, sure, they're a little off key and a little uh, forced because they, they don't have monitors. They don't have, you know, anything. Yeah, but but they're it, they're they're really good, you know, and they don't get thrown. They don't they don't like uh, storm off and say we can't hear ourselves. They just they know it's time it's it's showtime. So they so from 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 that from that period of of, of that, that blood, sweat, and tears in in Hamburg, I think it it made them so that they appreciate when they do have the luxury of time, you know, like in the studio. But also they do know that like when when the when when the man says you're on, you're on. Yeah. So like the enormous, the enormity, the task of writing a book on Brit mania. And like, I guess we should also talk about like, I mean, like one of the things that's so interesting too, is like when a band is universally acclaimed and comes from a certain area that the record company vampires will come out in droves to start hiring. And like case in point with Nirvana in Seattle years later in 1991, everyone goes there and starts hiring bands just solely because they were from that area. My question for you is, was there a lot of bands who also were picked up from Liverpool just because they were from there? Oh my gosh. That's hilarious that you, that you framed your question that way, because it, it happened exactly that way. I, uh, one of my sources is uh, a singer guitarist named Terry Sylvester. Mm-hmm. And he was in a band and uh, uh, he was a Liverpool guy. He said he was one lane over from McCartney, uh, you know, a lane being a street, you know, and, um, you know, he's, he's always in the Cavern Club, playing the Cavern Club, you know. And he always said, like, it was kind of scary because there's only one way in and one way out. So you're carrying all your equipment through the crowd. And so, oh, wow. Up. Yeah, that sucks. And he said, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, he said incredible energy. And also they had a DJ there who uh, uh, Liverpool was a, uh, a port city. So they were getting they had ships that were going from New York to Liverpool. So they were getting records from America and they had one, this one DJ in the Cavern Club who was, who was really on top of it because you wouldn't hear it on BBC radio, you know. Um, but, but, you know, if you went to the Cavern Club, he would be spinning these songs, you know, and he would lend you the records. But anyway, what Terry said was um, after the Beatles hit, he said t- talent scouts were driving up and down the lanes and uh, like, you know, Terry was in a band and he was, you know, 19, 18. So he, so he had his hair a little bit long. He had to look. And he said they would pull over and they'd say like, um, are you, they would actually yell out the window. Are you a musician? You have a good look. Like they were, they were, they were like that, that keen on, on uh, finding the next big thing out of Liverpool that they were driving up the streets, like looking at hot guys, you know, like, Hey, you're cute. You know, like, so, so that's just hilarious. That's exactly how it happened. That's crazy. Also, uh, Brian Epstein um, was uh, was in Liverpool when he first found out about the Beatles. He was uh, managing his family um, uh, record store, which is called uh, NEMS, N-E-M-S, North, uh, Northern England Music Shops. But anyway, um, he uh, a guy came in one day and said, do you have, uh, a teenager came in and said, do you have uh, My Bonnie, a song called My Bonnie? And he said, who's that by? And he goes, well, you wouldn't have heard of him um it's from the songs from germany and the band's called the beatles so brian epstein like like thought hmm you know and then he uh and then and then this is another one of those things i say are like these little coincidences or little moments where it could have gone either way turns out brian epstein's music store was around the corner from the cavern so he went to the cavern and he saw the beatles a a, a few times kind of you know scouted them and then offered offered to be their manager but anyway as far as the liverpool angle he he, Epstein dove into the into the role of manager. So he he managed um, Scylla Black, who was a, a, a vocalist, and um, he managed uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers, who were another huge early uh, liver, very Liverpool, very Liverpudlian band. Their song "Ferry Across the Mercy," I mean the, mm-hmm. the, the 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 river Mercy, you know that 
that is Liverpool, you know. So, um, you know, and, and they, you know, so he had, um, he had, uh, there was a, a big faction of, of Liverpool, but of course, eventually the, you know, you heard from Manchester, Birmingham, uh, London, it, right? yeah. you know, all, like, like from all, from all over England. But yeah, there was uh, there was a concentration on Liverpool for quite a while. Does the monkeys come out after the Beatles? Again, funny you should say that. Um, the, yeah, the monkeys came out after the Beatles. The Beatles uh, mm-hmm. hit hit America sixty four. Mm-hmm. The monkeys were on television in sixty six, and that's September, so later in the year. Mm-hmm. And everybody says they're ripping off a Hard Day's Night, and and they are taking the format, but it, it was a they weren't ripping off the Beatles. They were they were just doing like that kind of Marx Brothersy shtick that the, yeah. the Beatles did. They had they were a one quarter British band. Davy Jones was from Manchester, speaking of which. But the reason I say it's funny you should say it is because Davy Jones was on stage on the Ed Sullivan show the night the Beatles debuted. He was in the Broadway production of Oliver playing the Artful Dodger. Oh. You know, and he was, you know, he was younger, but he was always like five foot nothing, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, so he was a he was a, a child um probably uh 16 17 and uh so he he was singing consider yourself by lionel bart you know wow and and uh so he witnessed it he 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 says he saw like you know he heard the screaming and he saw the the power and the connection and he thought hmm that that seems like a direction to go in and not only that he said he got mobbed because the the same thing with like terror sylvester in liverpool girls would see him and he looked like their little cousin. And if you open <laughs> his mouth and they heard that accent, they started ch- chasing him, even though he was in a Broadway musical. So, so yeah, they, uh, well, the Beatles were first, yes. So, like I said before, so the enormity of a project like this, just write a book about Britmania and like such a prolific time in history and pop culture. Like, wh- did you start writing this like 30 years ago? No, it, it, it feels like a year and a half ago, but I've been researching it uh, for, mm-hmm. for, for decades. Um, I, I inter- for the book, um, I interviewed uh, uh, pretty much uh, uh, somebody from every band, uh, every major uh, British invasion band. I just missed a couple. Um, so I have like uh, members of the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, the Kinks, um, uh, Herman's Hermits, the Hollies, uh, 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 any, any, you know, most of the bands that are like the, 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 that were the British invasion. And so, I, and 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 also some of their uh, uh, some of their cohorts. So I tried to get um, a, 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 a it's familiar territory. It's a story that's been told. But what's unique about mine is um, it's a, it's a it's a visual it's a visual presentation, and uh, and also I am I am getting uh, putting my questions to to the witnesses and the participants, and so I'm trying to from the horse's mouth kind of perspective. For instance. Um, uh, I, the, the, the uh, two members of the Beatles that I spoke to were Ringo Starr and Pete Best. Wow. And, um, the, uh, but I also spoke to Alan Williams, who was their, their first, uh, manager, who manager, yeah. the guy who, uh, who, who booked them for Hamburg, drove them in his van, fed them along the way, uh, you know, and, uh, so for the first, for the first two years, Alan was the guy who was, who was pushing them, um, before Brian Epstein came along. And uh, and I interviewed Tony Sheridan, who who sang lead on My Bonnie, which was the the Beatles' first um, uh, professionally recorded and released uh, record, which was done in Germany during their Hamburg stint. And and it's it's a, actually a really cool track. Tony Sheridan's channeling Elvis, but and you can hear that it's the Beatles behind him. You can hear the magic, and you can sort of sense. The, the, the Hamburg spirit back there. So uh, I, I interviewed Billy Preston about being up on the roof with the Beatles. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, so like off and on, uh, uh, I, uh, I, uh, in, in every case, I try to paint a picture of like, it wasn't just the Beatles. The Beatles opened the doors and then it opened the floodgates and then all these bands followed and all these great songs, you know, the animals, uh, the zombies, all these great bands and their, their beautiful songs that we still remember. Plus, there was this, the weird thing of um, the Beatles were marketed to children because they didn't quite have it down yet. So um, for people who are listening to the podcast, he sh- he's showing me a toy from that era of uh, that's John. Or is that George? That's John. And here's Ringo. Here's John. Here's Ringo. Here's Ringo yeah. So with the uh, bobblehead toys. And that's actually another question of. that I was going to ask you is um, 
I mean, I've seen photographs of this, but I was just wondering, like, in your in your opinion, of all the merchandise you've seen that the Beatles put out back in that era, what was the most uh, avant-garde or interesting piece of merchandise that was associated with the Fab Four? Well, I, for, for, for my money, uh, I, it's the ones I just showed you. They were um, manufactured by a company called Remco. Mm-hmm. And um, they were and they were Beatles dolls and um, they were so popular that they just cranked them out. And and the result is that if you're a Beatles freak, you can you, they're affordable. I mean, they're they're they could be one hundred dollars a piece, but they could also be like thirty dollars if they're in like really crappy condition, you know, and um, the, uh, they're they're really charming and they're really uh, of the time. And because because the, the weird the, the weird thing was that. There, there was when the Beatles came over and all those girls were crying those snotty tears. There was something going on. It was a, it was, it was a sexual awakening. You know, it was like these girls were like be- becoming women and and the and they were longing for the Beatles. You know, and so there's like all the this subtext was screaming, but the marketeers were just saying, oh, young people like the Beatles. So here we're putting the Beatles on a box of cornflakes. We're we're uh, making Beatles dolls. We're making Beatles bubble bath toys. There was. Uh, to be uh, a Ringo and a Paul toy by Colgate uh, of a of bubble, bubble bath. He took off their heads and poured in the wow. bubble bath. And uh, uh, coloring books. I mean, stuff that like, you know, a, just a couple of years later, by the time you get into like 67, 68, you know, w- w- would have been unheard of because these guys are, these guys are now, you know, uh, they're psychedelic and John Lennon sings, Beals are more popular than Jesus. And yeah. nobody would ever put out a toy. You know, but uh, but for that weird period of 64, 65, all that merchandise was and there was so much of it. I mean, who, who gets a, who gets the, the piece of that? Is it is it the is it the Beatles? Because like now in today's world, they have something called a 360 deal where it's the record company owns all of your merchandise, owns your shirts, T-shirts, stickers, whatever. When the Beatles are putting out like combs, bubble baths, you name it. Where's all that money going? Well, that that is a very interesting question, and and you're right, and just just like we were talking about stadiums earlier, where yeah. how do you they, today they know how to play stadiums because they know how to do monitors and how to amplify. Mm. Everything was was still all this was still being created as as the Beatles were were kept pushing the envelope. So for the manufacturing, okay, so apparently uh, Brian Epstein said yes to everything, and that's wow. why. There were beetle ice cream. Uh, yeah, ice I've seen. Bars. I've it, seen the pictures of the the uh, ice cream bar type thing. Yeah, they, amazing. Right. Be- beetles candy cigarettes. I mean, and uh, whoa, they these, had beetles candy cigarettes. That's crazy. They, they had beetles candy. It's 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 all in Britmania, like a uh, very nicely, very cool presented. But um, the uh, and then there was a beetle Saturday morning cartoon that actually used real beetle song. When you think of what the licensing. Oh my god, those became, yeah, it wasn't yeah. their voices though, right? Wasn't oh no certainly they were too busy yeah. to have their voices too busy, you know? yeah. and uh, uh, Paul sounded okay Ringo sounded okay John had that kind of I say that you know that yeah. uh, uh, St John's Wood accent I say and then Paul I'm sorry George um, sounded like an Irish farmer nothing against <laughs> Irish farmers <laughs> yeah I, I've I come seen from this. a long line <laughs> yeah. yeah but um uh, anyway uh, getting back to the the licensing yeah. so. Mm-hmm. So Epstein just rubber stamped everything. And um, I don't know if he, the fact that he was managing uh, so many bands and um, he, and the Beatles were like, became like the, the greatest show on earth. I don't, I don't believe he was making the best business decisions and, or, or doing as much oversight and follow-up as he should have. Also, there was a lot of bootlegging. It happened with Batman also when, when Batman caught on in 66. So there are all these, there are all these um, bootleg Beatle um, products like like combs like beetle combs and 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 they would just put the beetles name on it or they they put like a, a like a cartoon of the beetles on it they would sell beetle boots and spell it b-e-e-t-l-e so they look like the the boots that you saw in a hard day's night wow they're a little, a little bit pointy and come up to the come up to the ankle but they but they didn't put the proper spelling of beetle so they they got away with it a lot of salons were uh doing beetle haircuts i mean it was yep. like people were just kind of cashing in whether or not they were paying you know i have so many questions all right so um okay so one could argue that elvis also too was a sex symbol in america before the beatles arrive how come elvis didn't get the same 
mass media blitz with merchandise and all that other shit. You know what I mean? Like, how come like what it was it was the Beatles more popular than Elvis in the early 60s? Well, here's 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 my theory. First of all, uh, it goes back to Sullivan. Sullivan yes. famously resisted having uh, Elvis on his show because um, of the hips. Yeah, because of the hips and because of the of like how sexualized it was. Mm-hmm. And also Sullivan was was firmly from the old guard. You know, he he it, it, people look at him and say, how did somebody that hideous get in get, become a variety show host? But it happened uh, sort of almost, uh, you know, by accident. He was a, a, a newspaper columnist who did it in the 40s, who did a Broadway uh, gossip column called uh, Talk of the Town. And then, he, then, and then, as happened many often in those days, it became a radio show. And then another thing is a lot of early television was radio translated on onto uh, television. So, Talk of the Town became the Ed Sullivan Show, and it ran basically it ran from like 1949 to 1971. So anyway, he re- he he resisted Elvis, but the numbers finally got him. Every you know he he realized that this would be ratings, but famously or infamously, he said. Just shoot him from from the waist up, you know. So, uh, so he wasn't going to. By by nineteen sixty four, he was he was a little more ratings desperate. This is David Davy Jones's theory, and he wasn't going to make the same mistake with the Beatles. So not only did he have the Beatles on, and plus they weren't they weren't shaking their their hips, but not only did he have the Beatles on, but he had them on several times during each broadcast. He kept bringing them back, and um, for multiple songs. Yeah, like I, I think they did three songs on their first Sullivan show. Wow! And I remember what's really an adorable moment is when he comes back out and he's going to introduce the Beatles the second time. He doesn't even get their name out. He just starts to say, and then the girls just scream and it's funny. And then Paul, if you watch it, does something. I think it's from the Hamburg days of you know, you know, keep the show moving. Uh, the song was uh, "Saw Her Standing There," which has a count in by Paul one, two, three, four. And so Paul does the count in. Because he realizes, okay, we're not going to stand here like idiots waiting for Sullivan to get our name out. So he does the count and they start playing. And then Paul, you look and see him like nod and smile to somebody right away off screen. And I'm, I'm thinking it must be Sullivan saying like, yeah, 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 you know, and then whatever. But anyway. Yeah, um, that's cool though. I mean, like yeah. I, I he, Paul really can hold it together though. I mean, he's got impeccable timing and rhythm. Here's a question, right? So. Oh, yeah, I just want to add one more thing. Bob. Yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Parents saw Elvis as a threat to their daughters. Uh, when the Beatles came along, parents were like, who are these guys? They have long hair. But then after they saw them, they, 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 they looked non-threatening. Sullivan always called them, quote, clean-cut boys. So they were they, they, at the very beginning, and their songs were, I want to hold your hand. You know, they, they, were, uh, they were non-threatening. So that's why all the toys and everything. Well, I mean, out. Elvis, though, his songs were like hound, hound dog. Right. What was Elvis's most sexual song? <laughs> Bob, I think Elvis's most sexual song. But that's just the thing. It's crazy. Okay, so like I'm thinking it, I've never thought these thoughts before, but it's like, OK, so, yeah, like it's almost like, OK, it was OK for the Beatles to get girls excited, but it was not OK for Elvis to get girls excited. The crazy well, thing a- is, though, is it wasn't the reaction towards the Beatles more uh, orgasmic than Elvis? I mean, they're screaming. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if I've ever seen Elvis have that reaction. The girls screamed when he would swivel his hips. It would be a burst. When the Beatles played, they screamed through the entire set. The entire, because it was too much for them to handle. And yeah, and it was, um, like I said, it was an awakening. Um, And and things are very different between 1957 when Elvis was established and 1964 when the Beatles debuted. Like, like, things had changed. Uh, You know, not for nothing, we've we've just been through the... uh, the Kennedy assassination and everybody was looking for some joy, you know, but um, uh, so, so, so like I said, they, uh, and, and one other thing about the, the huge difference between Ellis and the Beatles, El, the Beatles always said that they were, uh, that no matter how crazy the, the, the bubble got, no matter how crazy, like every day we want, we, we want to interview you. We want to photograph you. You have to appear here. You have to record this song. You have to be on this TV show. And for, for two years there, it was, it was just a, a real physical test for them. But they never let it get to their head because there was four of them to, 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 to keep each other in check. Ringo said one time he, he actually believed, I am the one. He like, like it went to his head. And then John Lennon said, look, what are you on about? You know, like they had that correction. Elvis didn't have that correction. And that's yeah. why he, he died. He ha- yeah, he had the general or whatever. 
the Colonel. Um, I haven't seen the new Elvis movie yet. I think I might wait. It's just too long. It's too long for me to watch. But um, here's another question, right? So, like, I, I I listen to lots of podcasts, and one of the podcasts I listen to, um, they talk about it all the time. This one guy, his name's uh, his name's Sean Hayes, and Sean Hayes. He didn't know that the Beatles was spelled with an A. He thought it was just B-E-E-T. It's like so many people don't know. When the Beatles first came out and had that A in there and had a play on words, was it a big deal? Was it a big deal to have like a band spell something differently? Like, Oh, well, um, it, it was uh, the late uh, Stu Sutcliffe, who was based for the Beatles at the start. Who came up with the name and he and, and they loved the crickets they loved body holly and the crickets so oh, shit, first yeah. it was like beatles uh, crickets beatles but then the, the adding the a there was because the, the beatles considered themselves a beat band b-e-a-t that mm-hmm. was a, a phrase back then so the beatles now everybody everybody <sighs> except for the band resisted the name they all thought it was stupid and one guy said uh okay your leader is john lennon so call yourselves uh, Long John Silver and the Beatles, because that was the thing. It was always like, and, you know, yeah. it was like Bob Cahill and um, the, K- the the Cahillettes or something, you know. So it, so it would be uh, so people were saying your name your name sucks, but they they just like you know stuck to their guns. Then later, when the Beatles became popular, you would hear com- comedians because the the uh, the the establishment uh, media was was very slow to embrace them, and so they so a lot of like. Um, comedians on the Ed Sullivan show would say like, uh, you know, the, the Beatles, the crickets, the cockroaches, what are they going to come up with next? You know, it, 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 you know, like anything to make a joke, you know, the, the, saying that their hair was wigs or whatever it was, you know. So um, there was resistance, but, you know, they, they said once they became like so popular, there was no looking back. It, you know, it just became part of the vernacular. They become, they become so popular that you know, it takes over our country. It takes over the world. Uh, and then, like, you know, John says that comment, you know, we're bigger than Jesus and everyone starts burning the records, which is crazy. So it was, it's crazy because it's like this takes place so long ago, but it's very similar into like what today's world is like. It's still got controversy. It's still got sexuality selling merchandise. You know what I mean? Like, it's wild how it still exists, but there has not been, I mean, I guess one could argue Nirvana came up and changed the music industry, but there has never been anybody as heroic, in my opinion, as the Beatles. Uh, it's so sad when they break up, uh, you know, for a long period of time, people wanted them to get back together. And I'm sure you've heard the famous story about Lauren Michaels offering them money. So for people out there that don't know, Saturday Night Live comes out. People really love Saturday Night Live because it's something new. They've never seen it. It's exciting coming from New York City. It's broadcasting live at 1130 at night. And Lauren Michaels, the creator of the show, says basically he'll give. I think somebody in the news was offering like a ridiculous amount of money, millions of dollars to have them get back together. And Lauren says he'll give him two grand. And John and, and Paul are at the Dakota up the street. And for a moment, they're about to go down there and play. Can you imagine in a different world? If they did go down there and reunited on television, did you like in a different reality? Do you think that the Beatles were destined to get back together if they didn't die? You know, Bob, um, this is like hindsight. Um, I really think everything happened the way it should. The way it should have. I mean, of course, John Lennon should have been shot dead, yeah. and you know, George Harrison should have died of cancer. Um, mm-hmm. But what I mean to say is, um, uh, th- they all they all were really sick of it by the end. They were not getting along. Um, and they all decided they, they wanted to embark on solo careers. People were worried about Ringo at first because he obviously wasn't the so- a songwriter like the other three. But Ringo was the movie star for a while. Yeah. And um, and then they all they all jumped on his albums. And, and he, you know, his his uh, 1973 album Ringo was a huge seller. It had it had three top 10 hits on it. So um, anyway, uh, uh, the, the, the song you mentioned that was in the 90s, uh, docuseries um called the beatles anthology um that the first of those songs free as a bird where they they have a tape of uh sort of a fragile tape of lennon on cassette yep uh accompanying himself on piano that to me is 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 a miracle and i believe with all my heart that that is a that is a beatles reunion that that is all four of them participating together only because of george like paul and ringo would, would be down with it but George was always the guy that they had to like convince, you know, or George was always the one who held back a little. He was the one who was not like 
it was like the, the show is like like when they recorded Let It Be, it was like the, the the Paul and John show, and you know Ringo just sat there waiting to play, and then when it was time to play, he came up with something perfect on the spot every time. Uh, um, not too many people mention that. My my brothers one said, "Look, look, look, look," you know, but um, uh, but George is always like you know you know he was very spiritual and he's very like kind of laid back and uh, you know, but he he sings a, a bridge and he puts that beautiful slide on it and he puts that beautiful little uke at the end and it, 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 it to me it's a miracle and to me I, be, I believe that it's a Beatles song with all four of them after the Beatles broke up. It's so, their sound so unique too and it's like when you hear like I, for me when I hear Lennon play guitar especially towards the later years when he starts to mess around with distortion like one of the things that was really cool for me is to realize that he's playing bass through all of Let It Be. He's playing electric guitar bass. He's playing a six-string electric bass, which I've never seen ever. Wow, I didn't, I did not know. Yeah, that. it's it's in the it's in the third episode, or it's later in that series. And you, I, I'm watching him, and I'm like, what what is he playing there? Because um, Paul's on piano, so when Paul's on piano, John's playing bass, but it's a six-string bass, and the bass strings are thin, like a guitar. And like I talked to my one friend about it, Brett Talley. And I was like, dude, what is this thing? You know, and I was so fascinated by that because his sense of timing, you know, I mean, as a bass player, too. I mean, the Beatles just have the best bass lines. I think what's that one song? Bulldog. Um, is it hey, Bull Bulldog. Yeah. Hey, Bull that bass yeah. line's amazing. I've never heard anything like that. Yeah. And Dear Prudence, like here, here oh, Paul. Dude. Played, yeah, like now the stuff that uh, the stuff that Paul Paul, it definitely deserves to be on the, you know, in the top 10 of greatest bases of all time up there with you know Entwistle and squire you know even, do you still though, listen to him do you have you heard paul mccartney three no no i have not it's really good i love it i i uh, there's a song in there that is just so inspiring but i mean to me it's amazing that he's still out there making stuff i wanted to go so bad to the jersey thing but it's so you can't afford these things you know what i mean yeah and he turned he celebrated his 80th birthday there i know and, dude. Uh, and you know uh Another thing about Paul, and again, I guess everything goes back to Hamburg for me, but you know, the, the fact that he plays, you know, he's an old man. He could, you know, say, okay, I'm 79. I'm going to be 80 on the tour. Uh, somebody else can play bass. I'm going to just stand there and sing, but it's very important him to, to be in the band. To be know? in the band. Yeah. He's got Even an amazing the, he, drummer. As old as he is and as, as, as uh, accomplished and, and uh, rich, wealthy as he is, this is important to him. I think my world's uh, totally collided. I think it was 2012 or so, or I can't remember the date, but I mean, uh, I think it was after Hurricane Katrina, Nirvana reunites with Paul McCartney as the lead singer. They don't do a Nirvana song, but they come up with a new song. It's called Cut Me Some Slack, which was from Sound City, uh, Sound City uh, documentary. So they perform it for the first time, I believe, at Madison Square Garden. Then they go on to perform it at um, Saturday Night Live once. I wanted that outfit to tour so bad. Paul's playing a cigar box, uh, like a cigar box guitar with a slide. Have you ever heard this? No. Oh, dude, I'm going to send it to you. You're going to love it. I know. I I have so many friends who are like, not, like there's a certain time where they stop their pop culture studies and it's just like they don't go forward. Oh, yeah, that's me. I, I yeah. live in the past. But, you know, <laughs> Sorry, it, though. It, 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 the, the, the cigar box is probably a reference, Paul's reference to um, uh, a, um, a, a, pre-rock and roll like literally just like right on the cusp of rock and roll mm -hmm. british only uh for the most part uh genre called skiffle where it was all homemade instruments really and they were and they had like a you know a, a oh yeah a, i know a that tea kettle with a mm -hmm. broomstick and a string the keg the yeah. bass and, the and bass you put um uh things on your fingers uh that you usually use for uh grating vegetables or something and so so and and you homemade instruments and uh playing like kind of blues folk and it was called skiffle and every one of those british invasion artists they all talk about skiffle and there was a, a, a the king of skiffle in england was how do you spell it gentleman uh s-k-i-f-f-e-l-e in I, fact that's um, i've seen that i never knew what that was yeah Lennon's first band was called the, the quarryman skiffle group and uh that was it that was the one where paul saw him uh at a, at a saint peter's church social they met for the first time um but um and then Paul, want, you know, wanted to join the group, you know, and John invited him, but um, eventually, but uh, so yeah, and Lonnie, Lonnie Donigan is the name I was trying to get out there. The uh, 
every one, every one of these British invasion artists, they all say that Lonnie Donegan was like a big influence on them because they, like I said, they weren't getting the American stuff on the radio, but, but Lonnie Donegan was on, on the telly a lot, you know, and on the radio a lot playing this, this homegrown music. That was, that was the forerunner of rock and roll. So the British invasion of America, right? What, okay. So that we, the British invade America with their music. What was great Britain's perception of this? Like, you know, like, were they like, you got our music now. You're taking our cultures, you know, because like, I'd be honest, I didn't even know the Beatles were British. Like when you listen to the music, you can't hear the British accent like you can with Oasis, per se. Like with Oasis, you can hear that they're British. I didn't know that. Was there ever an American invasion of American bands in Great Britain? Well, well, yes, but it wasn't publicized. Basically, all the Brits really? say that. Well, all the Brits say that. Um, uh, people like uh, like all the blues masters, like uh, Big Bill Brunzi and and uh, 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 the names are escaping me now. Um, but uh, basically, black blues artists, um, they uh, uh, John Lee Hooker, you know, um, they 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 didn't get really get their due in America. They didn't get the prestige or the or the remuneration in America that they deserve. But they, but they would do tours in England and they were like huge in England. They were the old masters. And some of these uh, Brits backed them up when they would tour, like uh, uh, Ian McClagan from the, uh, from the uh, uh, well, I know him from Rod Stewart and the Faces, but mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, a guy named um, John Mayle who did a band called the Blues Breakers. They would back these guys. Anyway, so mm-hmm. what, what they always said was, uh, what, what Spencer Davis told me was that Americans would say to him, where did this music come from? And then he would say to them, it came from you. This is American music that you ignored. And now we're playing it and we put our spin on it and now you like it, but it's, it's, it's American music. So it wasn't a British invasion, like wow. everything's overhyped in America, right? It wasn't like what, what we do here with like all the, all the hoopla, all the ballyhoo. But, but yeah, they, they, it, was, it was black American music that they all say that, um, you know, uh, and, and, and white guys like Elvis was, was big, you know, but they all say that like, like little Richard, I mean, you know, the Beatles backed little Richard in Hamburg, you know, like, uh, so, so they, they idolized these guys. Yeah. So there was one. It's crazy. If you think about it, cause it's like, um, we mine stuff like as, uh, consumers, like if we, if we see something we like, we just mine it until it's done. You know what I mean? Like, like Seattle. I mean, like they mined that city until nobody w- was left, really, you know, and they were signing bands and then grunge dies like that. I guess like the I mean, like the in conclusion, it's just it's hard to say. I mean, like in our lifetimes, probably not. I mean, we'll never see something like the Beatles again. Right. I mean, it, ever really. I mean, it's such a flash in the pan type moment, too, because it, it exists in a time that doesn't you really don't have that no more you don't have the simplicity of the early 1960s or the you know the honesty of uh how people perceive things i guess in a way is there a possibility that we'll get another group of lads from somewhere in the world or girls or somebody who can change pop culture like they did i I mean i'm i i never say never i'm sure it's possible um but but like what the Beatles did was was of its time, uh, even even though it, it the music itself has proven to be timeless, and even the charm of the Beatles, as Peter Jackson's docu series illustrated, to just just their charm is it, there, there's something hypnotic about it. Um, it was it, it was just one of those things that worked out, you know, in, in all of our favor. But um, but uh, but very much very much uh, uh, you'd never have another Hamburg or another cavern club or you know but the amazing thing is not only is, does the music survive but a lot some of these guys are still alive you know paul turned 80 on his tour as you know uh ringo um was touring uh this summer he's 82 the who have played shows the stones are still playing shows you know it's uh, after the death of charlie watts um and uh so they're 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 still out there now now in their 80s you know so it's uh it's it's pretty amazing pretty amazing in conclusion to write a book like this one has to have um certain feelings or um convictions about the choice subject matter um what does the beatles ultimately mean to you 
Oh, well, you know, I, to me and, and, and to, to a lot of people, it, it's in my bloodstream, it's in my heart, you know. Uh, a, a, a friend of mine, uh, I was talking about in the uh, 90s, maybe buying Beatles CDs. And a friend of mine who's a musicologist said, uh, his name is Larry Grove, he's, he's, he's actually pretty uh, pretty mm -hmm. accomplished guy. And um, he said, oh, I don't have to buy Beatles albums. I can just listen to them in my head. And I thought, hmm. you know, that, that might be right. And I said, hang on, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put on um, uh, Hello Goodbye. And so I just concentrated. And Bob, the next thing I knew, I was hearing Hello Goodbye, <laughs> clear as a bell in my head. Yeah. And so, so it's. It, I think that the thing is, it's 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 in your it's in your heart, it's in your bloodstream, it's part of you. It's weird you say that. I mean, like, yeah, I can hear. I am the. I can just hear like the the arrangement of the orchestra in my head, and then also like for some reason, like the the song Norwegian Wood, like I can see color when I hear that in my head, and it's interesting too because it's like a, as a closing thought too. I remember very early in life hearing, yeah, if you want your son or daughter to be, you know an educated free person of the universe, have them listen to the Beatles or Beethoven in the womb. And I definitely had the, the Beatles playing. Uh, my son now, uh, you know, we have very philosophical questions, but it's great. It's great how the Beatles, like it's a very, it's an easy way in to introduce music that matters to young kids, right? That there isn't really like, you know, uh, bad words in it or anything. It's just pure music and like, pure like in my opinion harm like the best harmonies ever you know i've never heard anything like that i mean nirvana tried to get there with like dave Grohl in the backing vocals but like to hear you know when they were three-piece harmony or even when ringo would get involved it's just amazing and it's like and i know you're wrapping it up yeah. uh, mm -hmm. but that harmony oh god everything's hamburg right they 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 were adamant that they recorded their harmonies live you know, nowadays yeah. you would you would put your harmony, you would put your and main vocal on, yeah. add one harmony, add another harmony, but they they did it live. And I talked to Peter Ham, who uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, not to Peter Ham, Joey Mullen, mm -hmm. who was in Badfinger, one of, and he says, you know, George Harrison worked with them a lot, and he says Harrison taught them sing your harmonies live, do it all, and there is something about that. It, it's warmer, it's more human, it's more real. Sorry to interrupt. I didn't know that. So wait, so all of it is when they're doing their their vocals, they're all in the room doing it together on one mic. Yeah, that. Wow. Uh, um, I, I mean, I can't swear to it. The Beatle nerds know everything. God, um, I want. I would love if they just had footage from all of their recordings like that. I mean, the back end of those episodes, I highly recommend, especially the second episode, because the second episode has just got everything in it. It's got drama. It's got creativity, and you really get to see how they piece together songs. And that's just the interesting thing to me is like how they would work through versions of it to get to the best possible thing. Whereas most people just are like, up, oh, this is the verse. Let's move on, you know, but they, they really respected their craft and they were so young, dude. And they make this stuff just poured out of them, just poured out of them. But I mean, like these guys are in their late twenties writing, let it be, you know what I mean? Like how, how dude, I was writing songs about rubber bands when I was 29, you know what I mean? Like not nothing that could last the, the, the test of time. Hey, you were in a band called Nixon Killed Hendrix. That's right. I mean, that lasts the test of time, too. Downtown Harvest. I mean, like, uh, I, I've been thinking about joining another band. It's just so hard with, like, being an adult and being in bed by 830 or 9 o'clock. I went to bed so early last night, dude. <laughs> just It just happens now. And it's just like, that's my thing. We podcast very early this morning. Uh, it's always a pleasure. You're going to have to keep coming back over and over and over again just because it's so much fun. I could do this all day. Thank you. Um, make sure you check out the links down below. Uh, Pre-order this book. It's going to be a great uh, addition to, I guess it's like the Vogue universe, right? This is, <laughs> right? Like, so we have, uh, we, we have, have mo Monsters, yeah. Psychedelia, Santa yep. Claus, and now this, and I'm working. And I'm and I'm trying to get the next one going. Holly Jolly, right? So uh, I mean, like, Holly Jolly, yeah. So like, so, we, we have an idea of what's happening in the future. I'll tell you. I always tell. I always tell the Bobcast. Yeah. I never tell anybody yeah. else. But I'm I'm trying to get a um, like the Adam West era uh, Batman thing going. But um, uh, I, you know, I got it all up here. And, but right now it's a race against time. I'm I'm 64. Stuff is starting to go. So it's a race against time to get these things done be before. Uh, I just sit in front of the three stooges with ice cream. <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen. I hope you stay uh, sharp in between uh, your ears for, for the duration. Uh, Adam West, 
appropriate time because Michael Keaton's coming back next summer uh, in the Flash film. So, I mean, oh, I meant to ask you about the, all that stuff. The rumor the, is, oh. is that um, I'll tell you after we wrap about yeah. what I know about it. But the rumor is, though, that they digitally recreated Adam West for a scene in the Flash and he's in. Oh. it. So the Flash runs through the universe and he accidentally falls into the 66 universe real quick. And like, come uh, on, nuts. Now, I have to, now I have to go see it. it. Yeah, but Michael Keaton's in it. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, you gotta do it. So you'll have to come back for that. Um, oh, yeah. Well, we can do another like, you know, uh, two day uh, podcast on it. But <laughs> make sure that uh, you check out this book, ladies and gentlemen. He's a wonderful author. He's a pop culture enthusiast. He is my friend. His name is Mark Boger. Check him out down below. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. My name's Bob, and this has been another episode of The Bobcast. <laughs>